welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Welcome to episode three of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Beth Eggleston. Beth's the co-founder and director of the Humanitarian Advisory Group an organisation leading the way on exactly how to work best in conflict and disaster zones. Before this, Beth worked for Oxfam for five years, coordinating humanitarian advocacy. Beth's also worked for the UN in Afghanistan and has a Certificate in Humanitarian Leadership, a Bachelor of Arts and a Masters of Development Studies. Among Beth's many achievements, she's been awarded the Humanitarian Overseas Service Medal for her 20 years of experience working in the sector. Beth, what an absolute honour it is to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for being here. It's lovely to be here, Rachel. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Beth. So we met last year at the Young Australians in International Affairs Careers Conference, I think it was, in Melbourne, Mm -hmm. and we were on the not-for-profit panel together. And I was just so impressed by your, your warmth, but your wisdom as well. You just said such insightful things and it was an absolute pleasure getting to hear your insights that day. So I'm very happy to have you here today. I actually loved your insights on that panel, Rachel. So we'll have to get around to that at some stage too. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. Alrighty. So I imagine a lot of our listeners are familiar with the Humanitarian Advisory Group, but some probably aren't as well. So before we start, could you just give us an overview of of what the organisation does and why you founded it? Absolutely. Thanks, Rachel. So Humanitarian Advisory Group, or HAG, as we are very fondly known in the sector, we were a group of women who had been working in humanitarian response uh, in many countries around the world. We found ourselves in Australia and decided that we'd had enough working for large lumbering bureaucracies like the UN and large international NGOs and decided it was time to set up something that was agile an organisation that could ask the hard questions because we're not operational in the field. We do work um, on a fee-for-service basis. We're structured as a social enterprise. So the way in which we work is we provide advice, training and research. We're the enabler for other humanitarian agencies. Right, that's really interesting and and girl power as well. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I love hearing that. All right, so... A really interesting uh, statement was made by the World Bank about a month ago now, uh, the International Finance Corporation of the World Bank, that we should be encouraging more private sector investment in refugee camps, which I found really interesting. And and the bank was sort of urging governments and development agencies to do more to support the way the private sector can work in refugee camps and and given the the current state of the world the refugee crisis that we have globally is is extremely uh, pervasive so i found that a really interesting recommendation from the bank and i wanted to ask you what your take is on this increased emphasis on private sector investment in the humanitarian sector Absolutely. I mean, I think the private sector has always been involved in humanitarian response uh, in many different ways. It may be 
that they're giving, in-kind support, providing technical assistance. Um, and, and, and an area where some people may be familiar is seeing how private sector is involved in telecommunications. So in uh, many large-scale emergencies, they may provide free credit or, you know, enable people to reach out to one another and to, to find one another. And I think perhaps refugee camps are, um, you know, a, a small area where we can see all of that private sector activity sort of happening in refugee camps all around the world. And I think, you know, especially, you know, people in need are very entrepreneurial. They are very um, good at trying to address the needs as they see them. And I think that's the core piece here, because although traditional humanitarian actors um, may see uh, for-profit organisations in the private sector as being a threat in this space, I really see if we're not addressing all the needs, we don't have a choice but to work alongside the private sector in addressing these needs. And I think there are great opportunities. I think what we're seeing in some of the big camps, one of the large refugee camps in Jordan, for example, in Zatri, they talk about that in a very small space of time there was a, a row of shops and you could see people you know, selling everything from white goods to, to phones to lollipops to, you know, ice creams. And although people might sort of say, oh, you know, what's going on here and how do we know that um, you know, who's delivering this and who's getting the profit from this, the fact is if there's a market for it and people want to set up businesses and allow goods and services to be traded, uh, it's got to be a good thing, I think. Um you know, and the uh, UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA, they have guiding principles with the World Economic Forum, which look at this public-private collaboration for humanitarian action. Uh, and there they're really talking about how the private sector must be involved in building capacity, in working alongside governments, uh, and ensuring also that they do work to a code of conduct. I suppose this is the key piece here, that an, an environment like a refugee camp is highly vulnerable. There are people there that have experienced a lot. They have been displaced uh, and they may be separated from their families. And it's really key that any kind of organisation, be it a humanitarian one or a private sector one, ensures that they are taking that vulnerability seriously and that they are working um, to the highest levels of an ethical kind of code of conduct, if you like. That's a really interesting take and, and you're right, these often the people in refugee camps are the most vulnerable of people and if, if we are not expecting private sector organisations to follow a code of conduct, it can go so wrong. But I, I agree with you that there is a lot of potential and collaboration so important. We can't expect to do everything ourselves and we have to recognise mm. that there's other actors in this space that, that can fill gaps that we're not filling. And I think IKEA is a really amazing example of that. They won a design award in 2016 for solar-powered flat-pack refugee shelters, which is, I just found that such an interesting an interesting concept. And IKEA, you know, we know them as, as the flat-pack organisation. And so <laughs> I sort of, I felt for the people in the camps. I was thinking, gosh, I hope you don't have to assemble these yourselves because <laughs> I certainly couldn't. Um, but I think that's a really great indication of, of you know when when we let these private sector actors come in and use their skills some really great things can come about so what what's your take on private sector led innovation and the way that innovation can change how we respond to humanitarian emergencies innovation is really the buzzword not just um, here in Australia where we have you know government departments dedicated to innovation but very much so in in the humanitarian world and what's really interesting I, again I guess one of the most 
tangible ways in which we see this playing out is really in the tech sector. So even at the moment, both both Facebook and Google have um, funds up for grabs at the moment to look at engagement in uh, crises and uh, humanitarian responses, which is really, really interesting, actually. And I first came across this probably about 10 or 12 years ago in Afghanistan, I ran into an Australian guy, actually, Nigel Snow, working for Microsoft in Afghanistan. And they were trialing different types of uh, software and hardware in these kind of, uh, you know, very difficult environments. Um, and it's fascinating. And even now, uh, you know, Google has a humanitarian arm that it's trialing a lot, you know, a lot of new ideas. And and I suppose because humanitarian crises pose some of these really wicked, if you like, challenges, it's a great opportunity for them to apply a range of different technological um, we may call them solutions to that. Um, so even in looking at the Pacific, we've seen partnerships between the Red Cross and We Robotics doing a lot of work with um, UAVs, drones, um, and also looking even um, under the water, looking at how submarines are being able to map um, different areas as well. And all that kind of information can help with disaster preparedness and that kind of thing. And I mentioned partnership because I think the innovation really is in the way that we work, not just in the products that are developed. So in looking at how a not-for-profit traditional humanitarian actor can work with a, you know, a leading-edge tech kind of company, that they're very different beasts. Um, but there does seem to be appetite for working with one another. And, the, you know, even here in Australia, the Department of Foreign Affairs uh, Innovation Exchange is really um, trying to foster a lot of that collaboration. That being said, I think uh, the innovation, it has so many opportunities, but there's also a lot of challenges that we need to address, I think, and keep that balance right in that. So, I mean, a big one uh, and a work that we do a lot of work around at Humanitarian Advisory Group is is on protection. So you may have the use of drones in, in many different areas that may be gathering information after a, a natural disaster. But if you're using that same kind of drone in somewhere like Pakistan, where Many communities have a very different experience of what a drone is and, and the repercussions of that. Um, crowdsource crisis mapping has seen some fantastic uses of big data and ways in which organisations can use that data to really save lives in the same way when belligerents find out where that data came from. Sometimes it's... Um, you, know, you see the you know, revenge attacks on those kind of vulnerable groups. And also I think we can make an assumption that technology is inherently inclusive. We have this uh, this thought that it will empower women and girls and, you know, everyone will be able to have access to it. But that's not always the case. If we look at who develops this technology, um, often it's not women and girls. <laughs> um, and actually the, the values and ethics of the developer of those, the hardware and software actually can uh, be seen in its end use as well. So although I think it, it can very much be used in some of these areas and we can include people much more, we can't assume that it happens automatically. We have to um, be proactive in making sure that happens. Yeah, that's such an interesting, such an interesting area. I had no idea that Google and Microsoft and even the Red Cross were investing in innovation like that. So that's really interesting to hear. This crowdsource crisis mapping, I... I imagine that the Facebook check-in thing is an example of that. We always see sort of, I know when I've had friends in Paris or London and there's been an event there, they're quick to check in and mark themselves as safe and that's interesting. But I, 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 I don't know that we're the sort of 
people that that is necessarily designed for when we're talking about humanitarian emergencies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, useful, very useful. But, yeah, I uh, it, definitely a two-sided coin, as you said, if belligerents can access that and, and misuse that data. Mm, absolutely. And I think uh, that sort of is a good segue into this disaster capitalism idea by Naomi Klein. Being a recently graduated university student, Naomi Klein comes up a lot <laughs> in discussions and I've heard about her in my work as well and um, her take on disaster capitalism and how in a humanitarian crisis the private sector or the government can push through things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And I think that idea is sort of responsible for the bad rap that the private sector has gotten in humanitarian emergencies. So if you're familiar with disaster capitalism, what's your take on that and and how relevant is it to humanitarian emergencies? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting idea. And um, I mean, I sort of see this idea of disaster capitalism as being I, I think I'll discuss it separately to this whole idea really of the political economy of war, if you like. I mean, I can see that there's linkages there and we can talk about, I mean, certainly if we're looking at conflict situations, the rise of private militaries and security companies has been one piece that, you know, was massive uh, in the early 2000s uh, where you saw there were more um, people working for private militaries and security companies sometimes in areas than there were um, troops from various troop-contributing nations. So there can be large you know, large numbers of people involved and billions and billions of dollars involved, definitely. And, yes, that can get mixed up with, um, you know, political challenges and political agendas, definitely. But I don't think we can see all people who set up um, some kind of of business in, in a disaster or do take advantage of a rapidly changing organisation as necessarily trying to... Um, undermine a humanitarian response or, or fleece people who have been affected by the by the situation. I think we have to acknowledge that currently the humanitarian sector is not reaching all the people that they would like to be reaching. Therefore, although we want to hold on very dearly humanity, independence and impartiality, we have to recognise that the private sector will be involved, is playing a role, um, has very strong ties to government and also can have very strong ties to non-state armed actors as well. Um, and this is where, you know, things are really evolving. In the past, you've seen, I mentioned private security companies, um, they're usually um, contracted by governments, but now non-state armed actors are contracting them also. So where does the duty of care lie? You know, where 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 does the, the legal framework sit when you're looking at that kind of collaboration or interaction? Um, but I think... It's simply a case of if, if the humanitarian sector can't reach everyone, we need to be working alongside the private sector. And whether or not the private sector may be um, by affected populations, the private sector can assist in, in a range of different ways. And we mentioned before this idea of in-kind services. But also the I think it's interesting that the reasons why private sector would like to be involved is not just for what they can deliver, but what it also does for their own organisation. So it's not just about their brand, but there's also the big piece about um, morale within private sector companies that staff want to be a part of something that's meaningful. Uh, And I think the challenge for humanitarian agencies is to ensure what the company doing is truly meaningful and is not causing harm. And I think the do no harm principle is something that 
would be great if all humanitarian agencies and private sector organisations were really aware of all their actions can have uh, can be perceived in different ways and their actions have um, reactions to that. So they need to be aware of what they're doing and the kind of impacts that those actions can have. I completely agree with you and it surprises me that the do no harm principle is not as widespread as we would think it would be because it seems seems quite obvious you know but it's um, yes. yeah but I I know I agree it doesn't seem to be development orthodoxy just yet um and I the the question that brings me to when I was preparing for this interview I did a bit of research into cyclone Katrina Hurricane mm-hmm. Katrina, I think they call mm-hmm. it. Um, yes. <laughs> and how so many organisations made such a profit out of the humanitarian response to that hurricane. And it really surprised me to hear that. And I sort of wondered, I mean, I think in the case of Hurricane Katrina, it wasn't positive. And when we look many, many years on, there's still people that are displaced. The The towns that were affected are not any better off than they were prior to the hurricane. And, and to me, that is that is a poor response. Mm. However, is, is there ever an instance where profiting out of a humanitarian emergency is okay or is good or should that never be our end goal? I think absolutely it can be good, but it, to me it goes back to livelihoods. So when you're looking at um, if you have, I mean some people don't agree with this idea, but the idea of having the humanitarian development continuum if you like. So when a disaster strikes and then you move through early recovery stages through to long-term development, this idea of getting livelihoods, so people to have a job to go to, to have an income, getting up and started as soon as possible. So if if that profiting, if you like, from emergencies is actually people within the affected population, um, you know, setting up their own businesses or re, reinvigorating their businesses that were there before, before the crisis um, and ensuring that those communities, the money is going to those communities, communities to be spent in a way that is in line with their their priorities. I think that's something quite different to, um, you know, large multinational companies being able to take advantage of a situation. I mean, I'm sure a lot of money was made, for example, out of the Ebola crisis in terms of the pharmaceutical companies. And I mentioned private military companies as well. There are definitely some sectors that have um, made a huge amount of money uh, around different kind of crises. But if we look at it from a livelihoods point of view, I mean, many agencies work in the way that they want to engage local organisations very early on so that they are able to source goods and services locally and also support those kind of businesses that employ people from the community and then we can ensure that there is some kind of um, more sustainable response and that you can be involved then involving government around policies in this idea of building back better. You mentioned in Hurricane Katrina that, you know, communities were were no better off afterwards. I think there is a real um, push within the international humanitarian system that you want to ensure after an emergency you can take, um, use that situation to build back better, to ensure that um, communities may be safer, that they are not built on swamp land or they have um, the houses are adhering to building standards, for example, so that they're earthquake-proof or a whole range of different things. Um, So, I mean, sadly, it's probably an economic reality that someone will always profit and perhaps someone may not. And to me, really, that's a question of power very much. So if we can ensure that power is shifted, um, and this is what 
the recent push towards localization is, you know, in 2016, the World Humanitarian Summit happened and there was a real push around, I think, this, you know, this international humanitarian system that does humanitarian work to people is not the way that we want to be going. It has to be empowering people to be able to respond in the way that is is best for that context. And that's tricky because it's not it's not the same in a natural disaster or in a conflict situation. Um, but if we have the kind of safeguards in place um, so that we can empower and have meaningful participation for people, I mean, I think that's, I think that's what we're really looking for. And we have to manage, I think, the large multinational companies who they are, they are large because they provide a service that that we need often. It may be a pharmaceutical service or there may be a security aspect to it, but we have to recognise that those companies are providing something that we need, but how can we more equitably distribute or uh, perhaps get that from more a, a smaller a smaller enterprise or a more local source? Definitely. And you mentioned the development continuum idea, which is sort of a part of the Build Back Better rhetoric. Mm. And, and and I think that's that's really interesting. I hadn't considered the development continuum concept until a few years ago when I uh, was working for the World Bank during some of the cyclones in the Pacific that we had. And it's really interesting to think we've got these groups that do our emergency humanitarian response, but then how do they transition into that longer-term support, which, you know, is 5, 10, even 20 years of, of building back better, which I, I saw that firsthand on Tana in Vanuatu. The entire mm-hmm. island was flattened in the cyclone and building back better is obviously a priority, but I think they're still recovering from yes. what happened a few years ago. So how do we ensure that we can do this smooth handover from our emergency response into our long-term development priorities? See, it's quite tricky because, as you were saying, that organisations might be working 5, 10, 20 years down the track. Then you have the flip side, whereas organisations um, have been working in a context for 30 years. So, I mean, many, many aid organisations were working in Afghanistan, for example, before 9-11 and be working there for some time. But if they were working hand in glove with government authorities and then suddenly you try and put on your humanitarian hat, which is neutral, impartial, independent, you know, only needs-based, an organisation like Medicines on Frontiers would say, well, you're not humanitarian because you've been doing long-term development work is inherently political. So there is this tension between those agencies who are what we call multi-mandated or have a broad spectrum like the Oxfam's, the World Visions, the Save the Children's that have this, you know, they do a lot of humanitarian work um, at the pointy end, relief, and then they're also doing the long-term development piece as well. So there is very much that tension around can one organisation work across the spectrum but also, you know, what what does that actually look like and do you put people at risk? If you're seen as an organisation that is inherently political, works alongside government and then suddenly is trying to take that hat off. But on, on the, 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 the recovery spectrum, I think that's where we're getting much better at actually planning from the outset. So instead of just flying in relief supplies and dumping them, a lot of planning happens beforehand. There is a organisations have exit plans. They have very early on they're planning for those early recovery activities. It's the livelihoods piece that I mentioned. They're trying to actually design their humanitarian programming that will give it some kind of um, dynamic nature so it can move along the spectrum, move along that continuum and end up with, you know, 
good solid long-term development programs because you can't have those long-term development programs. They can be undermined by an ill-designed humanitarian response. So understanding that, you know, those things don't happen in isolation there. And, and now people are really much more talking about the humanitarian development peace nexus. So it's also looking at that that peace aspect, you know, peace dividends, what it looks like, and with an acknowledgement that all the kind of development and humanitarian stuff we do has impact on whatever peace processes may be happening in that context at the time as well. Yes, that's really interesting. And it is interesting to consider the impact that humanitarian responses have on diplomacy and, and those more political factors. And I remember hearing a few years ago, uh, just prior to Fiji having their cyclone, the Prime Minister of Fiji had called for Australia to leave the Pacific Islands Forum, I think it was. It was at the point where Fiji said Australia shouldn't be a part of this group. And then within about a week of him saying that, the cyclone hit. And within 24 hours, the first respondent was the Australian military and the our navy ships were in the harbor you know within 24 hours of that and it had a really interesting effect on diplomacy because naturally Fiji wasn't going to turn around and say well we still want you to leave the forum and um, I, I think I think that was a really interesting connection between a humanitarian response and these diplomatic and political factors that are going on. Absolutely. And this idea of disaster diplomacy, you know, is a real, is a thing. <laughs> you know, it's something that, you know, there are often situations, I mean, if you go back to the Indian Ocean tsunami, the situation in Sri Lanka and in Aceh were both situations where people wondered if a massive natural disaster like this could have actually had uh, an impact on bringing about, about, about peace. And there is, different views on whether or not in either of those contexts it worked. But there, you know, often people can see those kind of um, rapid onset events as a bit of a circuit breaker and a way to almost bring people around the table to say, look, we're, we're actually all in a very, very difficult situation. If we're going to save lives, we need to actually try and do this together. So although that may only happen in the short term, um, there have been situations there. And what's interesting, you mentioned those those ship in, in the Fiji um, situation, Rachel, actually. Um, there's these two large uh, ships, one of which was deployed to, to Fiji. They were bought by the Australian Defence Force with actual um, those natural disaster responses in mind. So it's quite interesting, although they can do many other things, obviously. These LHDs or landing helicopter docks are these, you know, large organisations that can, uh, uh, vessels that are able to deploy helicopters and other kind of um, vessels from them to to support in these kind of things. So it does show that although, you know, militaries have their war fighting um, footing that they can be on, these uh, other kind of operations that they run, um, it's, you know, it's well known that there's a big diplomatic um, piece to that and also having that kind of kit um, deployed into our Asia-Pacific area that's something that people can see and it um, those pictures are on our TVs and people can see what we're doing in the region and there is definitely a um, you know, a higher level effect, I think, from those kind of deployments. Certainly. And do you think Australia recognises that being in the geopolitical position we are, we need to become experts on, on cyclones in island countries? These are the sort of disasters we will be exposed to. 
Well, increasingly, yes, this climate change. And we're, we're sort of seeing this with both Vanuatu and um, in Fiji, Cyclone Pam and Cyclone Winston being such massive storms that hadn't been seen in those lifetimes in those areas. Um, oh, yeah, very much so. I think it's something that's going to be seen as something that, you know, we have to be ready for and have to be able to respond to. But I think it's it's more around how are we supporting those governments to put their own legislation and policies in place and then the, how, the, the big question is, with all this lovely kit that I mentioned, all these wonderful um, gadgets that Australia has, how do we not go and stomp on their structures and policies and legislations that we've helped set up when it's a good photo opportunity? And that's something that happens. I mean, in Cyclone Pam, the National Disaster Management Office there was, I think it was only about eight people, like it's pretty small. And Australia sent in hundreds of people to that response. So how do you ensure that your response is, um, you know, in line with what the country is actually requesting so that you actually can have that kind of um, mature dialogue around we understand what your processes and structures are, how can we help you support those and work within those rather than just coming in over the top, which is not just talking about Australia but what the international humanitarian system can do, um, this idea of people just flooding in, lots of internationals coming in, thinking that you know, they often don't know anything about the local context or the local language, um, you know, and how can we really work towards just supporting some of these nations in doing what they, they already know. They know where they're going to need that assistance. So if they can communicate that in a way and if we can respect it, then that would be really a step in the right direction. And I guess that's where it comes down to this proactive capacity building as well and working in governments to develop these disaster response units and and building local resiliency and, and things like that prior to a, a disaster. Absolutely. And a lot is going on in this area already. Um, so many of the, the different governments in the Pacific, their national disaster management offices, you know, are doing amazing work about really mapping out exactly what the, the coordination structure looks like, the kind of supplies that they have, the actors that are there. They're already proactively making relationships with the different um, regional actors. And there's more and more going to be, I think, um, support from other Pacific Island nations um, to one another in the case of these emergencies, because that's where a lot of the the experience and the technical know-how is. So if we see more, more and more of that um, that support to one another, I think that will be that will be really good. But it it's all around that ensuring within those systems, those Pacific Island countries, that you have that me- meaningful participation and leadership, you know, of civil society as well as as well as governments, um, that you have all the different government departments. But you see civil society organisations and especially organisations where where women have a voice as well is you know is really really critical, um, and it ensures that the actors in the region who may be funding that, so it might be Australia, New Zealand, France, Japan, the US, ensuring that they are really ensuring that they're giving their money to local actors. So that could be local NGOs, local church groups, um, directly to local governments. And again, if I go back to the World Humanitarian Summit, this was a big call under the grand bargain, which was countries were really encouraged Um, when they're giving that kind of humanitarian funding to ensure that it can bypass many of those levels of bureaucracy. It's not going all to UN agencies or all to international NGOs that may filter down eventually. But how much money? And, I mean, Australia has signed up to give one quarter of their humanitarian spend by 2020 um, to go directly to local organisations, which is, it's tricky. There's There's a big 
there's a lot of risk involved in that. These organisations may not have all their, you know, finance, you know, complex financial systems or um, governance systems set up. But we need to take that risk. We need to ensure that we can direct that that money and therefore, you know, give power to these organisations that that know what needs to be done. They just need, uh, in certain times of crisis, additional resources to be able to step up and do that. Because I guess the alternative to not taking that risk is never investing in local partners that could have a really fantastic impact, which exactly. is a bigger risk. <laughs> exactly. And you, I reckon you've hit the nail on the head there, Rachel, because often people say, oh, it's too risky, we can't go down this line, um, we don't know what the result's going to be. But, yeah, the risk of not doing it means that we stagnate, we stay what and do what we're doing now, which isn't working. We are not reaching everyone yet. So we have to take this risk and take a step forward and actually listen to the people that who are there, who know what's going on, and they can channel those resources um, to ensure that we can strengthen those structures to deliver results. Yeah, and you talk a lot in your work about how important it is to localise humanitarian responses. When I was preparing for this interview, I really enjoyed reading a lot of the publications that HAG has produced Mm -hmm. over the past couple of years, Uh, and one of those was about the importance of localising humanitarian responses. So I think we've already touched on that, but can you talk about why it is so important that we do that? I mean, it's important. What what I think is fascinating through some of that research that that we did, um, my colleagues Kate Sutton and Josie Flint, working really closely with one of our national consultants, um, Linda Kenny. She's based in Vanuatu, and it was it was fascinating the kind of stuff that they heard because you might think when people are talking about localization, you know, it's just all about the money and it's it's all about um, you know the visibility of who's in control and this kind of stuff. And actually, what came out of it was dignity. People wanted to be treated with respect and have dignity and to be able to lead a response in their own country, um, which makes a lot of sense, really. Um, so all that other kind of the me- mechanics of it is almost um, is almost secondary. But that's what that means when you actually um, walk the talk in a localised way. So you are giving um, funding to local organisations and power to localisation. You are instilling dignity and respect and saying, we we respect the fact that you know what you're doing. Let us know how we can best support you rather than just coming in over the top. But something that I think is interesting with the localization, and we're doing some research currently with the humanitarian policy group out of um, the UK, which is going to be looking at what does protection look like when you're talking about localization? And this is really interesting because it may be something that um, it looks quite different in a natural disaster. But I was giving a lecture at La Trobe University last year actually talking about localization. And some of the students in the room, international students, one was from Somalia, one was from Kenya. And when, you know, we sort of espouse how important localization is, and some of these students said, oh, what a terrible idea. And I thought, oh, so it was interesting, this idea of they're saying, if you're saying that local authorities always know best or always have people's best interests at heart, you're sorely mistaken. And we have to be really careful when it comes to, you know, just assuming that certain government uh, leaders or, you know, or even business leaders are going to do the right thing. So when we talk about localization, I think we have to really contextualize that and understand that um, different organizations are not going to work to our beloved humanitarian principles. And in conflict situations, when your government whose duty it is to protect civilians actually chooses to do the very opposite, then localization could be something that's quite dangerous. So it, it is a contested idea, I suppose, 
But in areas where people are, governments are working to communities' best interest, I think it's in our best interest to support that. Mm, that would have been such an interesting response you had to that lecture. But it's true, isn't it? It's never as black and white as saying, well, it's better that we work with local organisations, so let's do that. Or it's better mm. that we only use international organisations, so let's do that. Mm-hmm. It's about finding that that middle ground and, and sort of a strengths-based approach too, I imagine, where we look at what's everyone's relative strength. Absolutely. And it it goes back a bit to do no harm as well. So the International Committee of the Red Cross, for example, in a lot of their um, work that they do in conflicts, their head of mission is always someone not from that country, an international staff member. And that's often because if they were asking national staff, local staff, to undertake some of these negotiations, they could really be putting themselves at risk. So it's also looking at how you protect your staff um, as well as how you're underdoing the work. So it's the process and the product, if you like. Mm. You also talk in your work about the idea of a complex emergency. And I, I, uh, I just wanted to sort of understand, is there any emergency that's not complex? Is there a simple <laughs> emergency or is every emergency complex? That's, that's a really good question. Um, and this goes back to the fantastic lot of jargon that we have in our in our sector, which I know every sector has lots of acronyms and jargon. Um, but, yeah, we have some real doozies, actually, some excellent ones. So we often talk about complex emergencies. When we're talking about that, it's really to differentiate it to a natural disaster. So natural disasters we're talking about um, where a natural hazard has overcome the um, ability for the local authorities to deal with it and a complex emergency is very much looking at instability, conflict, which can be paired with a natural disaster, as was the situation in Haiti. And I think that the key piece here really is around relationships, that you need to work differently in those kind of contexts. So if we take um, the cyclones that you've mentioned in in Vanuatu or Fiji, you would have uh, international NGOs based in Australia um, who have a a particular relationship with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade who may release funds for a humanitarian response. Those goods are based in Brisbane in a warehouse. They're able to be put onto RAAF planes from the Australian Defence Force and be flown out quickly to give that kind of, you know, that relief. And that is something that is, it's predetermined, it's set up. We have arrangements in place for that to happen. But if those same goods from those same warehouse were flown on those same planes to Afghanistan, that's something that is not acceptable from a humanitarian point of view. So you can see that the the coordination arrangements, especially to do with civil military um, interaction and coordination, are very much different when you're looking at uh, what we call a complex emergency. And in those complex emergencies I mentioned before, you have, you know, the the government that you may be wanting to work closely with may be belligerent in that conflict. So it's you're going to have to work differently, um, and you're going to there's different guidelines that. What does it look like if you need to have uh, an armed escort when you're moving humanitarian goods from A to B, for example? Um, Should you be, you know, and if you do have an armed escort, who should you be choosing and what does that look like and what perceptions does that send to the communities or to the armed actors that may be working in the area? So that's, it's really a a term complex emergency that we, that we use to let people know that we're kind of in a high end um, conflict situation where you're needing to take a whole range of other things into uh, into account and you're going to have to have staff who um, who are aware of those kind of complexities and have specialised training in that kind of um, insecure environment. That makes a lot of sense. 
Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. And you've sort of raised a, a point that I recalled from a few years ago regarding the humanitarian goods that are brought in in the immediate aftermath of an emergency. And I, I think it was Tonga's cyclone actually a few years ago. Naturally, the Australian public really wanted to help, which is you know, mm. it's great. And I think that's done with the best of intentions. And people started sending over things. And um, an organisation in Australia did some fundraising and sent over a shipping container of bras in mm. the, the week following this emergency. And I, again, I, I know that that would have been done with the best of intentions. But in the immediate wake of an emergency, I don't know if a bra is the first thing that you're thinking of. So how important is it that we sort of help the public to understand what do we need immediately after an emergency and when is the best time for you to be involved and, and sort of play a role? Yeah, and not send bras <laughs> <laughs> because um, this is such a good point, Rachel. Um, there is actually a lot of work being done um, around the world, but I know there's, a you know, fantastic work happening in the moment uh, in the Pacific around what we do call unsolicited bilateral donations, stuff, stuff that gets sent to emergencies. Because while you raise a very good point that perhaps people may not have needed those bras, it's not just what they didn't need. It's actually the space at the airport where that shipping container may have been parked, the amount of um, people power, the amount of um money for warehousing, um, the lack of coordination that can happen in an emergency, clogging up an airfield with all those kind of what we call UBDs, those unsolicited, unsolicited bilateral donations. Um, it can actually cost lives and it can cost, I heard some statistics around um, that the government of Vanuatu has paid more than $2.5 million US dollars storing uh, UBDs that came in during Cyclone Pam and that's a lot of money for a government that could be using that in many other you know, different different fields. But I, I agree the the amount, the fact that people sent Fiji water, I don't know if you've seen those beautiful bottles of Fiji water, people sent Fiji water from Australia to Fiji during Cyclone Winston. And really that idea of, you know, they've done the calculations of how, you know, if you've just sent cash, this idea now that we, we are meant to ask when there's a humanitarian crisis, why not cash? And I know a lot of people balk at that and think, no, 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 I don't trust aid agencies or I'm worried about corruption, but we must ask why not cash because it goes back to what I was saying about localization. Cash can instill dignity. If we give cash, people already know what they need and lo and behold, going against popular belief where everyone thinks if you give cash, people just go drinking and gambling with it, actually people often buy food and clothing and organize shelter with that cash. Um, and I don't know why we have this assumption that people have no idea what to do with the money. I mean, obviously, you need to give cash in, in situations where there are access to markets. Obviously, you need to do that. There are situations where markets may have been completely decimated. But um, sending in a lot of goods because we think we know best, and let's be honest, people send goods because, it, and this is my personal opinion, people send goods because it makes them feel better. We have to actually look at what is going to have the best impact on the field. And the Australian Council for International Development, ACFID, is also doing some work around this and actually speaking to just what you mentioned around how can we provide effective messaging to the Australian population for them to understand. It's not that we don't want your help and we don't want your compassion and we don't want your, your assistance in addressing what's happening internationally, but we really do want you to um, assist in a way that is actually going to have the most impact and also that won't cause harm, that won't clog up airfields and cost 
post governments a lot of money. I think you have explained that so well. There's a great page on the DFAT website of um, unsolicited bilateral donations that have come in over the years. It's a good read and I had a good laugh when I read it a few months ago. (laughs) The question I want to finish with today, a bit of blue sky dreaming perhaps, in your view, what would what are the markers of an ideal humanitarian response? So if there's three or four things that really make a humanitarian response, what are they? Great question. There are, um, and I think it's different parts of a response can do different great things. So you've got, you know, the donors on one side, the um, implementing agencies on another, private sector on another. And I think we're not overly good at measuring this. So it's a very good question you ask. And I think often we're very focused on what we did badly. And it's it's almost like we we live on um, in a bit of a schizophrenic uh, situation because aid agencies have to constantly pump out to the public what they're doing well to garner support. And then the rest of the time, they have to be focused on all the things they did wrong and all the lessons learned that they need to do for next time. So it is it can be tricky to actually measure what, what you've done what you've done well. And I think Part of that is because some responses, um, what you do well, is making sure that something doesn't happen. And that's very hard to quantify. It's not tangible. And it's very hard to put a logo on. So, for example, ensuring that civilians are not killed in a situation. So, protection of civilians. You can do a very good job with that and it sort of goes unnoticed. If you fail, everyone knows about it. But I think if you're ensuring that you are like I mentioned, using cash, that you are protecting people. You know, you can have the best um, shelter, water systems um, and, and, and food distributions in the world. But if you're not keeping people safe, you have failed. You know, those pillars of humanitarian assistance are that material assistance and the protection. If you are supporting local structures, if you have a good connection with early recovery initiatives, that you are linking with diaspora. I think that's a big piece that we often forget. And that's um, often diaspora can be working on a political realm, ensuring that, you know, peace uh, negotiations can be taking place. But also um, they are often the largest um, uh, source of cash of money going into emergencies um, for families to access. Um, and looking at women's leadership, I think if we can bring those together, we, we often do not hear women's voices uh, in emergencies and women are often those who are most affected by emergencies. When you look at um, crises in natural disasters, um, oftentimes women haven't had access to swimming lessons and are not able to swim. So you see, uh, like in tsunamis and other cyclones, women are, are at huge risk of drowning. Um, So if you're actually hearing from women what they need and what they want, supporting those local structures, protecting people, giving cash and building back better, I mean, that's what we're really looking for. And we have a lot of research guidelines and structures around that. It's Doing it is not easy, though, um, that's for sure. No, doing it is not easy. But, Beth, you articulate that so well, and I'm just so glad that you are the director of HAG and play such a big role in this sector. I feel relieved knowing that that you're doing what you're doing. So thank you. Uh, I think that's a great note to end on. So thank you so much. This has just been such an interesting discussion and uh, I'm really grateful we could have you on the show. Thank you. There, There really are so many interesting and real challenges out there, but I think we have some great initiatives to tackle some of these challenges. And, um, It's so great that you're having this podcast series and people can talk about these kind of issues. So thank you. How great is Beth? 
What a fantastic, funny, knowledgeable, inspiring woman. I am so glad I could introduce you to her today. As always, please respond to the show on our social media channels. Let us know what you think. I'd love to hear your top takeaways from today. And otherwise, tune in next week for another great episode. See you then. Bye.